to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Saturday, March 5th, and it'll begin airing on Sunday, March 6, 2022. My name is Reese Robinson, and I'm on air today with my co-hosts, Emily Scott and Jasmine Smith. What's going on, ladies? Hello. <laughs> it's a, it's a big, How's it going over there? It's going okay over here in Europe. I am, yeah. There's all a right. war going on. Yeah. <laughs> I think we all yes. know. It's good to hear your voice. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty far from it. I'm not, you know, I don't consider myself. I'm like, I looked at the map and I, I'm as far from Ukraine, I think, as I am from like, like Israel, essentially. Like, it's like, it's okay. very, very far away. But yeah, it's pretty wild. But things are a little different over there, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Spain, Spain, or at least Bar- Barcelona is a little... It's a pretty uh, like people protest all the time, and they, I mean everyone I, in my community is like raising money and stuff um, to support it. Just, I mean support the Ukrainians and um, the families yeah. that are being affected. Um, yeah, I mean we'll see what happens over the next few weeks. All right, well definitely stay safe, Jasmine. How you doing? Um, I'm fine. I can't complain. Just hanging in there, me and my cat. What up, Dre? <laughs> hey, Dre. It's yeah, been getting, up. you know, looking more and more like spring every day mm-hmm. in Brooklyn. Still kind of chilly, but, mm-hmm. you know, this is my my time of year because I know better weather is coming. So I'm looking forward to the heat eventually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. I didn't hear anything about the groundhog this year. Did you guys? <laughs> I heard he died. Like a I did too. I didn't want to say it, but I heard he died too. Like, oh my God. It's like, wow, that's dark. He said, Let me get out of here. Oh it was kind of like like kept I don't know. They didn't really say much. They I don't know. It's really weird. Um Yeah, like, but I thought ooh. there was more than one groundhog. There's, There's several. I feel like okay. it was the Staten Island one died or something. Like okay. I don't know the if it was the one in I don't know if it <laughs> was Punchatani Phil. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. shout out to the groundhog. I don't know if that stuff was ever really true, but yeah, maybe maybe we should leave them alone. Yeah, with yeah. the uh, yeah. lives. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. yeah. What a concept. Yeah. R.I.P. <laughs> mm. Spring is all gonna right. come. That's all you gotta do. Like that's all you gotta know. You know it's coming. Right? Exactly. So let maybe let's you know give peace a chance with these underground animals <laughs> trying to hibernate. <laughs> Exactly. Pulling them out of holes and stuff. Okay. Well, on the docket for today's episode, our local news segment will be about New York City ending contact tracing. On national news, we're going to talk about the horrific story about the mass killing at the church in Sacramento involving a father and his two children. Our world news story, we will have some background on what's happening now in Ukraine. And for good news, the U.S. government is dedicating a large amount of money to preventing wildfires. So I'm looking forward to hearing that. We're going to go ahead and kick off today's episode with our local news segment. Emily, you're up. All righty. So this comes from a March 1st New York Times article by Sharon Otterman titled NYC will soon end its main contact tracing program for the coronavirus. Uh, The following information is directly from the article. Uh, Quote, New York City said it would end its main contact tracing program for the coronavirus next month, and yet another sign that officials across the United States are shifting how they treat the threat of the coronavirus. 
Trace will be coming to an end in late April, giving us eight final weeks to complete your current work and get New Yorkers ready for the next phase as we learn to live with COVID. Dr. Ted Long, the executive director of the city's test and trace program, wrote in an email shared with the New York Times that was sent Monday night to the city's remaining contact tracers. Uh, People working as contact tracers also received a second email notifying them that their contracts would be ending in late April and inviting them to apply for other positions in the city's public health system. On Tuesday, two of the city's contact tracers who requested anonymity to discuss a policy that had not yet uh, been publicized said that they had been expecting the end of the program for months. One of them added that he was surprised the program had lasted as long as it did. Uh, uh, In early January, when New York State was overwhelmed by the Omicron variant, state officials announced that local health departments did not need to trace every case, but the city kept its program going anyway. Then on Monday, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention changed its guidance and no longer recommends universal case investigation and contact tracing for COVID-19. Dr. Long pointed to that new federal recommendation as a key reason the city was ending its program, along with the sharp recent decline in cases and widespread vaccination. Over 96% of adults in NYC have had at least one vaccine dose, he wrote to the tracers. We have very effective treatments, including a new oral medication that can be delivered the same day at home. Having these strong protections in place defines a new phase in the pandemic where we can learn to live with COVID. As of January 25th, the program, which began in June 2020, employed about 2,000 contact tracers, according to the city. A large part of their job was to connect New Yorkers with resources to help them isolate, like free hotel stays and community organizations that could provide free food and other deliveries. Over the course of the pandemic, the program provided 33,000 hotel stays and delivered more than 2 million meals, the city said. Many immunocompromised Americans feel left behind by the lifting of precautions and restrictions across the country, and the CDC continues to recommend contact tracing for the coronavirus in high-risk settings like nursing homes and homeless shelters. A city spokesman said Tuesday that the city would continue tracing in those settings, but that responsibility would revert to the health department. The main coronavirus uh, tracing program has been run until now by the city's public health corporation, a decision that aroused controversy. After the main tracing program ends in late April, people who test positive will get a text message about resources that can help them, including a new program for antiviral pill delivery. They can also call a city hotline, uh, 212-COVID-19. The city's large-scale virus testing program, which continues to operate about 150 testing sites, was not directly affected by Monday's announcement. And that is my local news story. I would also, it's also sort of good news, I think. Um, It's just, I don't know. I feel like we've had so many fake outs, like with thinking everything is better and we're good. So like, I don't know. It's like, it's like the vibe is that we're like, we're all getting over this hump, but it's like, it's hard to, to not also be like looking over my shoulder, ready for the next wave of bad news, you know? What do you guys feel? Well, I definitely feel that is somewhat good news um, for various reasons, but I guess this is a sign that things are changing. So we have to be a little positive, but I'm sure that, um, I don't know. I'm st- I feel like we're moving too fast, to be quite honest with you. I feel like everything is just like over. 
everybody is killing yeah. the mass mandates the this the contact tracing is going away like it's just it's just happening so abruptly and I, I want to be happy about this change in the world but it's just like is this I, 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 it's even hard to imagine life a little bit without um, all of these measures specifically mm-hmm. that as well you know mm-hmm. I am in disagreement with this happening I think it would make sense to, you know, you have way more people doing the work than is necessary for what the numbers are, but I don't think that that means that you should stop calling people. Um, I don't know. Did you, you mentioned that they're going to be texting people or is that something else that I read? Yeah. Like Mm -hmm. there, there's a lot of people, especially in a city like New York, you, they might not have a cell phone. They might not understand English. They might not have the ability to. Um, you know, go to a link that's in a text or like understand what it is. They might have a landline that you're trying to text. So the idea of switching to that only, I think is not great. And, you know, contact tracing isn't new. Like it's existed for a very long time and we still do it for all types of other illnesses that don't spread as quickly, like, or, you know, that are not, um, they tend to not be as widespread. So like hepatitis, measles ebola like those things are always like those things are always contact traced so you know i don't understand why they wouldn't just shift it to you know maybe not just in a high risk environment but you know just in general if the numbers are low enough like you can have the health department do it but still you know go through those steps Because, you know, I think that I agree with Teresa. I think that things are moving way too fast with pretending like things are over. And there's a lot of just like moving, um, like moving goalposts to create a sense that things are further along than they actually are. So like there used to be different standards for what counted as like high transmission. And now instead of like the numbers actually changing, it's just like, let's change the standard of what we consider to be high. So like that's, that's, those are my thoughts. I think it's um, premature. And I think that in the long run, we're going to regret a lot of these steps that are happening so fast. I don't disagree that it's premature because I think we've seen with Delta, with Omicron, that like every time we're ready to like move on, quote unquote, you know, there's this another surprise around the corner. Um, but I, I, I am. I We don't, you know, do contact tracing for, for things like the flu. Right. For example. And I think, you know. This is like a question. I don't have an answer for it but obviously when coronavirus appeared in 2020 it was devastating deaths and hospitals overwhelmed like very serious on the level with you know what you were saying like like those other serious diseases that people do contact tracing for um you know stds for example and like um like ebola or measles and things like that but you know if if hospitalizations and um uh, deaths are, you know, basic or like almost, you know, um, negligible, right? Like, do we still need to contact trace for diseases like that? Just like an open question. Uh, I would say yes. Like for one thing, like the flu, we have known about the flu, like for like a hundred years, 
like corona like it is still a relatively new disease with a lot of unknowns especially with like ways it might affect you in the long term and i also feel that there's a lot of things that we normalized previously like with the flu for example that maybe should not have been normalized so it hasn't been normal in our lifetime to contact trace for the flu it's been normal for a lot of people to not wear a mask in flu season to still go to work, you know, Mm -hmm. when they feel like they're ill and for that to be the expectation. Mm -hmm. I don't think that that was, it should not have been that way at that point. And I think that we should have a different, like, I think that the mindset around those types of things should shift instead of being like, well, we didn't do it with this thing. So why should we do it now? You know, and it's like, I think now is a time when like things have gotten like lower where you should continue to the effort to contain it because at least it seems more manageable than to treat it like it's not a big thing. Like there's still a lot that we don't know. And I think it's better to be like on the more cautious side. I do agree with that, Jasmine, Um, just because, you know, these vaccinations rolled out all quick and shit. Remember that whole thing. And the way that we are now seeing like the long term effects, um, which can last forever, because I think one of the things we're seeing is a lot more people got vaccinated through Omicron. And I guess that's why people are feeling more comfortable um, with them relaxing these laws. I think there was an increase there and stuff like that. But I do agree that we don't really know a lot about the virus itself. It keeps mutating. Um, we we shouldn't just rip the Band-Aid off. Um, and as far as for other diseases, I think that's why the contact tracing and things of that nature have helped us to manage the outcomes when these things happen. So I do see the value in that. I definitely agree with um the points being made about like changing our lifestyle in terms of like not going places when you don't feel good yeah um like that I think that's huge and I know that um I think and like wearing masks when you're not if you have to go somewhere and you're not feeling under the weather I'm pretty sure I learned recently that culturally that happened more in start started happening in Southeast Asia after the SARS outbreak in like 2003, mm-hmm. 2004 as like a regular norm. And I think that it could save a lot of lives and a lot of well-being, right? Like if, if I don't, and like, also like, why should we be expected to do stuff if we don't feel well? I think, you know, like it's, um, it's not good for anyone. Um, so I, I do hope that does become a permanent change for sure. Um, and also Teresa, you made a cool, an, a cool and interesting, I, I don't know, you made a point about the things continuing to mutate. So I also hope that, um, and I, I'm pretty sure this is the case that by ending the contact tracing program, they're still going to monitor for things like that through testing, right? Like monitor for, um, mutations yeah, and sense. things like that. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I hope that that becomes, I, I'm, I would, I haven't heard that that's not that that's ending. And I know that they do regular flu monitoring for mutations. So I'm assuming they're going to continue to do that for COVID too. Um, yeah. Yeah. I hope so as well. Cause it is important and it's, you know, the more you learn about what's happening with the virus, I think the better prepared you are, like it's better to have that knowledge yeah. than to be kind of in the dark. And I just kind of worry that the way a lot of these decisions are heading, I think it will kind of take people out of that loop of staying informed and 
make people have like a false sense of security because you know you mentioned like people who are immunocompromised and things feeling Mm -hmm. left behind and you know I feel that and there's a lot of people who you might especially with the way the U.S. health system is set up it's a lot of people around here walking around high risk that don't even know it that you know maybe someone else they feel cool and they have covid and then you spread it to somebody that is devastated by it like you just don't know mm-hmm. so you know I, I wish that they would just reduce it to fit the numbers but not get rid of it completely cuz um from experience i know that it's helpful a lot of times especially in such a big city to speak to someone and it's not just people in like nursing homes or other types of settings that would need that layer of support. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, nice discussion, ladies. Definitely interesting um, to see where this goes. We are going to go ahead and take our first music break for the day before hopping into the national news story. This track is called West Coast and it's by One Republic. We'll be right back. I've been dreaming about the West Coast. Find some places that I don't know. Give me the sun for just a year. I'll kiss the sky and disappear. I've been staring up at the grayest skies. Trying to find myself some luck, but it's running dry. It's like the weather makes it worse than my cloudy
you can follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule. Again, no spaces, no punctuation marks. Thanks, and here's Teresa. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for the national news story, uh, this one came from an article on theguardian.com. I didn't see the author um, mentioned. It might also be from the um, AP of Sacramento. And the title of the article is California Mass Killing Raises Troubling Questions Over Guns and Domestic Abuse. The father who fatally shot his three daughters and a man at a California church this week repeatedly threatened to kill his estranged girlfriend and scared their girls so much they cried and one bit off her fingernails, according to a restraining order that was supposed to keep him away from guns and bullets. But 39-year-old David Mora had both when he showed up on Monday for a supervised visit with his daughters, ages 13 and 10 and 9. He shot them. The chaperone he and his ex-girlfriend had agreed could oversee the visits and then himself. The violence at the Church of Sacramento, a non-denominational Christian place of worship, raised troubling questions. How did Moore get the gun? Should his arrest a week earlier on felony charges have prompted postponement of his visit? And what pushed him over the edge to commit such an act two days before his middle-aged daughter turned 11? The Sacramento County Sheriff's Office has said little publicity about what investigators have learned. We are not disclosing the type of weapon that he had at this time. How, how he came to possess a firearm will be a part of our investigation. But I read in another article, it was, um, it was, a, it was some heavy artillery. I'll find that when I take a break here. Moore's five-year restraining order barred him from possessing firearms. On a court document he submitted, he denied having one. Having and he denied having any. Moreover, his ex-girlfriend, who had lived with him and their daughters, didn't believe he had any firearms, so didn't seek what's known as a red flag restraining order. Imposing such an order puts the person's name into a database that are checked when someone tries to purchase a weapon. That kind of order, for example, stopped a former University of California Los Angeles Los Angeles lecturer from buying a handgun in Colorado last fall. Faith Whitmore, chief executive of the Sacramento Regional Family Justice Center that provides services to victims of domestic abuse, said a case manager and an attorney who worked with Moore's estranged girlfriend last April had no indication Moore had a gun, and so there was no reason to seek the red flag order. Uh, She said at the time that she submitted the petition for the restraining order, she had checked that he did not have a weapon. With no more With no indication that Moore had a weapon, there would be no reason for firearm removal hearings, said Juliana Lee, a supervising attorney who oversees domestic violence and family law cases at the Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles. A hearing can lead to a search of a person's home. Many weapons are purchased illegally, and so-called ghost guns that contain no registration number can be made at home. In those cases, the owner wouldn't show up in a database that only tracks legal purchases. Other family law experts said it was unlikely as a practical matter that Moore's arrest last week on charges, including assaulting a police officer, could have been used to prevent his court-ordered supervision. 
supervised visitation with his daughters. There is no formal process for police to notify his estranged girlfriend, and she had learned of it informally. She would have had to contact the lawyer to ask the judge to modify the visitation order on an emergency basis last week. She noted that judges generally favor keeping some sort of contact between their parent between parents and their children, yet the mo- in the most tragic cases, court-ordered visitations with an abusive party provides the abusive party with the tool to further harm victims and their children. Moore's restraining order and his arrest last week in Mesa County were routinely, ha- routinely have been entered into the law enforcement database. She said the shooting less than a week later shows the lingering lack of communication despite legislators' efforts to close such gaps within the new law. So I'm going to stop right there. There's more to the article. Um, There's a lot going on here. Um, Obviously, this man was not well. Um, Did you guys hear about this story at all? I saw the headline, but I I didn't know. I haven't read anything about it yet. It's crazy. Or it's not yeah, crazy. I, it's terrible. Yeah, it's I read about it, and it was the he killed himself, his three children, and the person who was a church member yeah. that was supervising the visit. So like somebody else that was just trying to be a source of support. Oh my god! Yeah, to them, absolutely. you know, also lost his life because of this. It was really, really just knowing how much of the of a background this person had, and exactly. still. They, he was granted any type of contact with the children. Mm-hmm. I just, I mean, it's he was horrible, horrible, just, heartbreaking. I feel so bad for the mother. Yeah, he was just arrested last week as well. So you know, the there the breakdown in communication between the mother not knowing. She said they the article said that she found out informally from someone else. You know, it, it just once it makes me wonder like who's really responsible or can be held accountable in cases like this where it's a family at jeopardy, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, I don't know that there, that should be automatic if one of the parents are involved in something like that. Um, Somebody should be alerted. I just feel like the the communication breakdown just is the reason that we're sitting here talking about these people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's really, really sad. Um, Many prayers out for the mother Mm -hmm. and, Wow. I mean, they had like a whole series of reports of domestic abuse for all this time as well. So, mm-hmm. so it's a really hard one. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just feels like our society doesn't take domestic abuse seriously, you know? Right. Like, period. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And it's- and we've seen that we tell, you know, yeah. I talked about this a little bit over the pandemic, how, you know, so many um, more domestic violence cases were, yeah. you know, being brought to light because people were forced to stay home with their partners. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just really sad that something like this could happen. And what what brought him to that point where he just couldn't take it anymore? It's just really sad. There's that. And there's also the fact that he had access to a weapon. Like I mm. thought I read that he had an AK 47. Yeah. And was... the thing that the thing that I re- was reading the article, I don't remember. I think it was like in a local news article. Um, they were saying at the time they weren't sure how he was able to get it because he shouldn't have been allowed to purchase one. And I think you mentioned like ghost guns. Yeah. People like can that make they're them so in their own home. Right. Because even if you have like a a restraining order, like all of those things, if the person is still physically able to get around and they have access to something like that, 
there's only so much that like a protective order is going to do. And it's really a shame because, you know, something that maybe could have been him trying to like physically fight someone and being able to be restrained, you know, the fact that he had access to a weapon like that changes so much because as opposed to, you know, him maybe yelling and screaming and trying to swing at somebody and be, you can kind of restrain something like that. But when a person has access to these types of weapons, like the harm that they can do is like intensified so much. And it's so sad. Like, I I hope they figure out how he got access to that because he definitely should not have been allowed to get it. No, but we, we see that happening over and over and over again in this country. Like every time there's an incident like this, it's someone who like, oh, shouldn't have had access because they had X problem and X history. There's some, you're right. There's always a track record or yeah. some, you know, a root to the cause. Yeah. So we know what the real problem here is. It's just access. It's just so easy to get a gun in the U.S. Exactly. Like period. Period. It's crazy. It's, it's like. And then there's people making these 3D printed guns, which is really disturbing. So you you don't even have to go in and buy it. Or like, even if you were on a registry and if if all that was working the way it's quote unquote supposed to work, you would still have the ability to just like make one yourself, you know? Exactly. It's it's really, you know, but like we all said, violence against women, it's, it really Mm -hmm. is not taken seriously in this country at all. Mm -hmm. And, this is the 70th mass shooting so far in the United States just this year. Jesus oh my Christ. gosh. You know, like that's, and I wonder how many of them were, you know, men that had a history of abusing mm-hmm. women. I'm sure a lot, mm-hmm. you know, it always leads to something. It doesn't mm-hmm. just stay, you know, some kind of low level family dispute or mm-hmm. whatever. Like this is dangerous. Yes. And he could have harmed so many more people. Mm-hmm. You know, if that church, I, I I can't even imagine what the people in that congregation is going through as well. Just, mm-hmm. you know. Oh, my goodness. All right, y'all. Well, did you see anything like a GoFundMe for the mother or something? Or You know, I didn't, but I will look that up. Um, Maybe I can announce it before the show's over. I'll look mm-hmm. that up and see what we have. Or you can put it on our social media when I find it. Mm-hmm. yeah we'll keep an eye out because she definitely needs like all the support she can get like just really horrible 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 exactly. to lose your children period but in such yeah. a way yeah definitely very tragic story uh we're gonna go ahead and take a break y'all before we get into the world news segment the next track is called unrest 2 and it's by brandy younger we'll be right back
Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now Jasmine's going to bring our world news story. Um, so um, I'm sure if you've been watching the news at all, um, the invasion of Ukraine, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has been um, taking over the headlines for a while now. Um, as with any like global crisis, there's always like a very long history that predates like what's happening right now in the moment. Uh, I'm not able to cover like everything, um, but for today, uh, I pulled this information from several articles on NPR written by Becky Sullivan and Joey Hernandez from Reuters and from Al Jazeera, an article that was written by John Saropoulos. Um, so I'm going to focus more so on uh, what's been going on in Ukraine from uh, about 2008 up through today, just so that you have um, some more basic background on the crisis. Um, so just a bit of ge geography. In eastern Ukraine, there's a region uh, that borders Russia called Donbass. This region is made up of two ter territories named Luhansk and Donetsk. Uh, and for nearly 20 years, according to NPR, both of these regions have been led by pro-Russian separatists. Uh, in 2008, Ukraine had a former president that was more pro-Western. His name was Viktor Yuchenko, and he asked for a NATO membership action plan. Uh, NATO is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. But NATO responded that even though one day Ukraine would be a member state, there was no specific plan set forth for Ukraine to join NATO. Uh, two years later, Viktor Yanukovych was elected president of Ukraine, and he said that Ukraine should be a neutral state and should cooperate with both Russia and Western alliances like the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Uh, three years after that, Viktor Yanukovych announced that he would not be signing an agreement with the European Union that would have opened borders to goods and opened the way for travel restrictions to be eased. So it would have you know, brought Ukraine closer to being a part of um, the EU. Ukraine's parliament at the time had voted to approve the agreement, but Yanukovych claimed that the country could not sacrifice trade with Russia and that it was due to Russian pressure that he would not sign the agreement. Uh, so after that happened in late 2013, um, from 20, November 2013 up through February, there were large-scale anti-government protests in Ukraine calling for Yanukovych to resign. Ultimately, over 100 people were killed in clashes between protesters, riot police, and unknown snipers from November to February 2014. Yanukovych fled to Russia. The Ukrainian parliament established a new government. Russia's President Vladimir Putin did not recognize the new Ukrainian government as legitimate and annexed Crimea, uh, which has been a part of Ukraine since 1954. 
the United States and its allies in Europe condemned uh, Putin taking over Crimea. Uh, a referendum was held in Crimea, and according to those results, 97% of the residents voted to stay a part of Russia. However, those uh, referendum results are disputed, so it's in dispute how accurate they were. Um, fighting continued to break out between the Ukrainian military and pro-Russian separatists in Donbass in, uh, the east, in eastern Ukraine. In April 2014, Ukraine's interim president, Alexander Turchinov, said that the Ukrainian government lost control of the eastern part of the country. Uh, also, still in 2014, a referendum in eastern Ukraine found strong support among residents for secession from Ukraine. There was obstruction and some violence in the east during the spring 2014 presidential election as fighting continued. Um, in the fall of 2014, the Ukrainian government voted to grant the separatist region self-rule temporarily, but did not declare the regions fully independent. And ever since then, so from 2014 till now, there has been on again, off again violence between the Ukrainian government and the separatists who are backed by um, Russia, um, even though they did agree to a ceasefire. So from 2013 up through now, more than 13,000 people have died as a result of the conflict and more than 1.5 million have been displaced according to the Council on uh, Foreign Relations. Uh, moving for closer to today, in April 2021, Russia sent 100,000 soldiers to Ukraine's borders, and Ukraine's current president, um, Zelensky, urged NATO leadership to put Ukraine on a, on a timeline for membership. So in all of this time, like from 2008, when they had a pro-Western president who asked for a plan for Ukraine to be a member of NATO up through now, like it has not happened. Uh, in December 2021, President Joe Biden, U.S. President Joe Biden spoke with Putin by, by phone and urged Russia not to invade Ukraine. Um, Putin issued a set of demands, which included asking NATO to permanently bar Ukraine from membership and to withdraw forces stationed in countries that joined NATO after 1997, including Romania and Balkan countries. He also demanded a written response from the U.S. and NATO. Um, the U.S. and NATO said that they cannot bar Ukraine from joining, but they signaled at the time that they were willing to negotiate over smaller issues like arms control. Um, so from mid-February up through now, like as we're aware, like fighting has escalated between Russian-backed separatists in the East, Ukrainian forces, um, and we know that um, Putin has, you know, is basically an all-out war at this point. Um, so this is just some background information that I thought was important to highlight, because I know when something is in the headlines, like you just see what's happening right this minute, and it can seem like it's out of nowhere, but um, this has been boiling for a while, and it's, it's getting more concerning by the day. Um, thank you for that background, Jasmine. I yeah, no, you know the headlines have been stream streaming in nonstop for weeks at this point about the lead up to everything and um, you know, and what's currently going on and um, but that background I think is is 
good because nothing happens in a vacuum, you know. Absolutely. This is a long-standing conflict. People have so many people have been killed, um, and it's it's really pointless. War is always about power and control, and it's like just fucking keep the peace. I seen this morning that there's some like nuclear reactor in Russia that may be going wrong, and the ICC um, is supposedly bringing up charges of um, all kind of charges on Putin that of genocide and all these different things yeah. in the international criminal court i've seen is that, that gonna do anything you know at this point i like, mean he, that's like, always the question he right? like really seems to not care <laughs> he doesn't he yeah. absolutely does not at this point it's yeah. just no oh my god it's it's awful that this is happening right now yeah and it's like reading up on the, i remember years ago i don't know if you all watched it but um when the Euromaidan protests were happening in Ukraine, which is what it was called back when uh, their former president didn't sign the agreement to bring them closer to the EU. And there Mm. were people protesting against that. Uh, There was a documentary on Netflix called Winter on Fire that was about that period. And I remember, you know, it was very jarring to me um, because it's, it's, you know, that's not a part of the world, like where I'm up on like their history and everything like that. So I, I learned a lot, but um, it was incredibly violent. So I think going, doing this and like reading up on, you know, going back almost 20 years, like there's a lot of, you have a lot of external forces going on. And then you also have internal things happening because uh, like with a lot of countries, like the way that the borders might be drawn, like you might have like different groups of people that do like have issues with each other. So like you have the country trying to keep the peace within itself, but then because of where it's geographically located and like the resources that are available in that country that other people depend on, you have, you know, the rest of the world is also like involved in like this tug of war, like power struggle. So it's like a lot, a lot of complex shit going on, and it's it's very frightening just seeing things like you know men can't leave the country, um, people struggling to get out, not being able to get out. You know some reports of like di- reports of like discrimination based on who you are trying to get out. Not everyone is able to evacuate like equally, um, and whenever you have like a lot of like ran like armed men just running around it's like you have many that are you know trying to do the right thing like defending like their homeland and everything like that but then you don't really know as a civilian you might not know who's who like who's gonna help you who's gonna hurt you you know so it's it's very very frightening to watch unfold absolutely prayers up for everyone that's involved and all the people that we've lost so far. Um, I really hope that this man can be stopped or something can happen really, really, really soon. Cause it's just, what has it been eight days? And it just feels like it's been so long. Like a lifetime. Yeah. Right. Like how did we ever live? Not with (sighs) this conflict. Absolutely. I would say too, like it's um, like I tried to read from a number of different news outlets. I would encourage people to do the same because 
you know, there's always a lot going on in the world and the way that things are framed sometimes can be very much focused on like individual people, like being good or being bad. And even though that might be true, like I definitely agree that, you know, the leader of Russia is not a good person. I think it is important to try to like read as much as you can for like context so that you have a deeper understanding because there's definitely a lot of attempts of like, misinformation or misrepresenting things or you don't want to end up like supporting people that you know their politics are like the opposite of what you want to support so like you know just try to go into it with uh, as informed as you possibly can beyond just um, maybe what you see in a headline and we'll definitely try to link with you know, reputable places where you can give support. Like I know, like refugees are always in need of support. Um, I know there might be people in need of like language assistance if you can offer that. Um, so yeah, just keep informed about not just this, but you know, there's a lot of conflicts happening in the world. And it, I would just encourage everyone to like make that effort to dig a little deeper beyond just um, what you might see like in a quick flash. Absolutely. Thank you so much for all the research you did on that story as well. All right, Emily, give us some good news. All right. So this story comes from, uh, I found, so actually I found the story, story in an email newsletter that I signed up for. I'm not sure if I talked about it on the show before, but it's from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. And the newsletter is called The Climate Optimist. So this is um, a regular newsletter that comes out that's um it's basically you know what I do on the show a lot which is like talking about like what is what is the good stuff that's happening like because I know because so much of climate change news I mean it's scary and it's real and it's bad but um so much of the news stories are doomsday which is not effective for mobilizing and actually doing something about it um so I recommend checking out that newsletter And this story is by Joseph Winters and comes from a newsletter from another outlet called The Grist. Um, And that newsletter is called The Beacon, apparently. So newsletters on newsletters. But um, this the piece is titled It's Thursday, January 20th, and the U.S. government is spending $50 billion to prevent catastrophic wildfires. Uh, This information is directly from the article and quote. Uh, The Biden administration has announced a new phase in the war against devastating wildfires. Unlike the firefighting strategies of decades past, which focused on putting out fires as quickly as possible, the president's new plan is all about minimizing risks. Uh, You're going to have forest fires. Agriculture Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack, uh, whose department oversees the Forest Service, told the Associated Press. The question is, how catastrophic do do those first have to be? The government's new program will spend $50 billion over the next 10 years to thin forests, topple overgrown trees, and preemptively burn dead vegetation that could serve as fuel for the West's next major conflagration. According to a 47-page report from the Department of Agriculture, the plan will treat up up to 50 million acres of land, focusing efforts on particularly vulnerable parts of the wildland urban interface, the area where communities run up against forests. Uh, These measures, the report said, are intended to address the crisis proportions of the growing wildfire risk in the West. 
Indeed, the announcement comes after a series of wildfires scorched western states in 2021, from Colorado's devastating Marshall Fire just weeks ago uh, to last summer's Dixie Fire in California. Um, I'm going to pause for a second and say I'm not actually sure when this article came out, but um, anyway... Uh, just weeks ago to last summer's Dixie Fire in California, the second largest in the state's history. Both of these fires were fueled by climate change-related tinderbox conditions, and scientists predict that the West will continue to see more intense and destructive wildfires as the planet warms. Uh, but the past year's fires were also fueled by decades of forest management policies that sought to stamp out any and all fires, allowing leaves, twigs, and other kindling to build up on forest floors. Vilsack said the uh, Forest Service's new approach would require a paradigm shift that embraces similar smaller fires while also working to make forests more fire adaptive. Um, so that's that story. I just want to double check when the Marshall Fire happened. Okay, yeah, so that was accurate. So this, yeah, so this is from January 2022. Because the Marshall Fire was at the end of 2021, it's hard to keep them all straight because they're so hap they're happening all every freaking day. There is a new wildfire, but um, yeah, the issue of of these huge wildfires we've been seeing devastating the West Coast and the U.S. through the last few years, um, it's interesting because wildfires are a natural process, right? Like, it's not um, they're right. yeah, like those have been happening since the dawn of time, and um, you know older like uh civilizations learn to to clear brush and things like that and learn to embrace wildfires and because because fire is restorative in nature in many ways you know it burns away dead things so that new things can grow um but you know as the article explains with climate change things are, are drier for there's more dry things for longer and there's other factors too in terms of our just the way we live, right? Like we fear fire, so historically, you know, as as um, you know, we don't we're trying to prevent all fires, right? Which is not just leaves more dead things to to create larger fires later, you know, things like that. Well, that's dope that uh, resources are going to find these things out. It's definitely been an increase. Um, and fires over the past few years, like it just happens all the time. And it's scary. So many people uh, lose their homes and mm -hmm. oof, it's rough, but thanks. That's good news. Yeah. yeah. I remember we also had a story. I think it was early on when I was on the show about um, the people that are made to be fought like firefighters at the time, like they mm -hmm. were using like prisoners or something, mm -hmm. but then they yeah. couldn't actually become full-time firefighters right. after. So yeah, right. like there is a huge human cost yep. and natural cost when this, when these things happen. So what's the site again that you said you got it from Harvard? Oh yeah. So it's from a newsletter. Um, so the, it's the, the climate optimist, and that's from uh, the Harvard School of Public Health, T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Um, okay. And then the actual article came from, like, whoever put together that newsletter found it via another, you know, other outlets. But, um, yeah, it's, it's a, I look forward to getting it in my inbox where it's like, okay, I'm not, the heart, people at Harvard also think that there's reason to be optimistic or they're, you know, this isn't a few, you know, a dumb that's person so thing. So the name of the newsletter is The Optimist. The climate optimist. Climate the climate optimist. optimist. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Nice. Well, shout out to all the wildfire fighter fighters out mm -hmm. there. The world. You guys are doing some amazing work. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. All right, y'all, we did it. That concludes this week's episode. Um, thank you so much for listening to Objection to the Rule. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org, on, on the Radio Free Brooklyn app, or on Spotify. Listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. We're going to play you out with our final track of the day. It's called Crazy Race, and it's by the RH Factor. Happy Sunday. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Have a good week. We about to get up on this thing, the time is now. What you waiting for? It's time for you to get up and show the world what we have in store. Some people had to stand in line to get up in this place. Time is surely hard. Pick up your guard in this crazy race. We about to get up on this thing. The time is now. What you waiting for? It's time for you to get up and show the world what we have in store. Some people had to stand in line to get up in this place. Time is surely hard. Pick up your guard in this crazy race. If you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter. Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate.